If you can't preach good news after those songs, you're dead. I have one more song for you. Are you listening, Scott? In case you ever need a, someone to fill in. <laughs> Only a boy named David. Only a little sling. Only a boy named David, but he could pray and sing. Only a boy named David. Only a little brook. Only a boy named David. And five little stones he took. And one little stone went in the sling. And the sling went, and one little stone went in the sling, and the sling went, and round and round and round and round and round and round and round, and one little stone went up in the air, and the giant came tumbling down. You see how important children's ministry is? <laughs> Stuff like that gets locked in there, and that's what's happening down the hall, and our kids are learning to sing these songs. That's why we love starting here and then sending them down for even more expert training. Yeah, David's kind of a hero, a man after God's own heart. We've had fun seeing what the Lord has done through David. He's done some grand things as he has shepherded the sheep and loved God's people and loved God and written many songs and led in prayer, saved God's people. However, as of late, David's had a couple sad chapters, hasn't he? If we could only stop by singing about the fact that the stone went up in the air and the giant went tumbling down, and if that was like his legacy. But he's had some bad days, running for his life, suffering greatly, making decisions, going to the house of God, lying to the priest of God, coming up with this really great idea. Let's go to the house of our enemies and see if we can find refuge and peace and safety there. And Ultimately, his decision and his lie led to the slaughter of a whole town. The man after God's own heart was a saint, but he was a sinning saint. But what we have seen is that David not only is a sinful saint, but David has a God that has unfathomable grace. A God who just refuses to leave him be. A God who keeps coming after him over and over again. And when God finds him, God presents his really good law, his standards. And David is not one who says, oh, I don't care about that. Neither is one David one who says, oh, I have kept those laws. David sees himself in light of God's law as a person who is only a sinner, who never loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And David is crushed by the law, crushed by sin, brokenhearted, but then God doesn't stop there by just making him feel guilty and shameful. God sends his spirit to come in and soothe his broken heart and mend it as David starts understanding that God is the one who does separate our sins as far as the east is from the west, he writes, that God throws them in the deepest part of the ocean, that he remembers them more. Our sin, it is great, but his mercy is more. But God doesn't even stop then. God goes and restores his fallen soldier to his mission. He restores him to ministry. And David forever will not be a blameless man. 
He will always be one. And there are more bad days and more bad chapters to come. He will always be a sinful saint, saved by grace, called by grace to continue on. And that's what we see right here. David is a repenting man. He's walking in accordance or trying to take God's law seriously. He is worshiping. And are things going incredibly well? No. He is still in the wilderness. He is still a man on the run. He is still being unjustly treated. But God's not finished with him yet. God has work for David to do. And so David, while he is repenting, is suffering. But God has surrounded David by his family. A group of interesting fellas. He's also sent a prophet and a priest. Has called David from the wilderness back to Judah. And David is sitting there on go. What now? What can God do through a man who has just caused the slaughter of hundreds or thousands? There's good news. Let's read it. Verse 1 of chapter 23 of the book called 1 Samuel. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and robbing the, the threshing floors. David's brothers and sisters are in trouble. They are farmers. They are working in the field, so they prepare the field. They sow the seed. They weed, they keep away the, the strangers from coming and devouring the crop. They make sure it's watered well to the best of their ability. They wait and they wait and they wait and they finally see it growing. They harvest it. They bring in the sheaves to the threshing floor. And right there, do you know what happens? That's when the Philistines decide we're going to attack. We are going to break in. We are going to steal. We are going to not work, but we're going to reallocate your wealth. This is what the Philistines do. And the men of Keilah are in trouble. It appears that they cannot defend themselves against this outside force. Do you know what they need? They need good government. They need a good king, Saul, to do what he's been called to do. They need someone to come in and, and protect them and their assets from people who want to do them wrong and take away that which God has provided for them to steward. Now, I think Saul knows what's going on. Saul is pretty aware of everything that goes on. He has his servants and his soldiers and spies and henchmen all over the place. He seems to kind of follow right behind David's every move. You'll see that again in the text here. But Saul doesn't do anything about this border invasion problem. Saul just sits back and he has more important things to do, like what? Take out his political enemy, David. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Saul is not interested in being the leader he ought to be, the shepherd he ought to be, and sometimes neither am I. Sometimes I am the man who's been called to be responsible for Laura or for my family, for my grandchild who's coming in the next couple weeks, Lord willing. I've been called to be an elder here. I haven't been called to political office, but what God wants is for his shepherds to shepherd, to fight, to protect, to love, to serve. And Saul is not interested at all. 
but somehow news makes it to David. Did someone know David has some kind of a, a reputation for loving God, for loving his brothers and sisters, for hating the wicked, and for taking care of business? They're right. Verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David has a sense, this is what he's supposed to do, an inclination, an inner drive. This is what God has called him to do, but this is what he wants to do, and he's pretty sure God would have him go, even though he's suffering. Notice, sometimes we use our current suffering as an excuse to say, yeah, I'm just a man in the wilderness. I'm going through tribulation. Saul's coming after me. I don't have a lot of money, and the guys around me aren't much good, but maybe let me get that taken care of first, then I'll have some extra energy to do something else for God. That's not where David finds himself. David finds himself kind of internally motivated. I hate those Philistines. I hate what they do to God's people. It's time to go to war. But previously, David has been a man who leaned on his own understanding. And it caused him great pain and it harmed others. Here we see him maturing. Here we see him sensing, I, I think this is where I'm supposed to go. There's an open door. Now, you're going to see later that open doors are funny things and closed doors are funny things too. Because you just don't know if an open door is opened by God or Satan. You don't know if a closed door is closed by God or Satan. So we're never just to assume because the opportunity is there, that's what God wants us to do, or because a door is closed that we should turn and do something else. Maybe we're supposed to bust right through it in the name of Jesus. David is not leaning on his own understanding anymore. At least in this chapter, he's beautiful. He inquires of the Lord. He asks for revelation. He needs wisdom. He needs counsel. David is passionately interested in being the leader, following Israel's true leader. That's what we want to be, leaders following our true leader, who is God. So, so David somehow goes and asks the Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord answered him somehow. The words of the Lord are, go, attack, and save. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Game on. Come on, men. Let's go. Our God is mighty. He has been strong in the past. We know he will guide us now. This is in line with his mission. It's what he's called us to do. Nothing can stand in our way. When God is with us, who can stand against us? Let's go! And the men say, whoa! He's ready to go. He's all courageous. But verse 3, David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the enemies of the Philistines? His passion is not shared by his men. They're struggling. I mean, they share their concerns. <laughs> All right, you can't do everything, David. You got to choose your battles. Maybe we would rather be a ministry that does a few things well than a lot. And right now, we got more on our plate than we can handle with the resources the Lord has given us. 
We got Saul with his thousands who are coming at us, and we're living in the strongholds and caves and forests and wilderness. Now you want to add a second front, and we'll have the Philistines and their hordes against us too as we uh, attract their antagonism? How about we just, first of all, deal with the Saul thing? Then we'll get around with dealing with uh, the Philistine thing. Let's first of all take care of our, our own personal needs. Then we'll get to taking care of helping someone else. How does David respond to their fears? Verse 4, Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. David does not mock, belittle, or berate his fearful followers. He also does not bow to majority opinion and say, Well, I know what the Lord said, but no one's going to do it with me, so therefore let's, let's throw this plan out the window and we'll wait for a better day to serve Jesus. He also does not arrogantly ignore them. He knows he can be wrong, for he knows he has been wrong. Now, he's interested in doing what God says, but he wants to make sure that he gets it right. Am I hearing correctly? Am I heading in the right direction? Is it the proper time now? So David, for the second time, is a model worshiper here. As the leader of Israel goes to Israel's true leader and inquires of the Lord, what would you have me do? David learns he has heard correctly. God repeats his instructions, maybe with a little more emphasis. Go, fight, attack, arise. I am going to give the Philistines in your hands. We're going to talk about that in a second. I, the Lord, am going to do this in your hands. Divine sovereignty, God says, is going to be shown as you exercise human responsibility. Verse 5, And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. God communicates his information to David. David communicates the information to God's people. And the Lord changes their hearts, or at least affects their hearts, so that now these people who are characterized by fear respond to their fear with courage and obedience. They do what God has called them to do. Though fearful, they obey, travel, fight, and risk it all to love God and serve their brothers. Isn't this fun to see? This is what can happen. When God molds a leader like David, and that David then seeks to mold a leader that follows him as he follows God, now we see we have 600 men characterized by having a faith in God, a love for God, a love for their brothers, a hatred for the Philistines, and a desire to help one another. This is a beautiful thing to see. And so they go, and they fight. Some of them probably die. The text doesn't tell us that, but there's... No reason for us to think they engaged in a whole fight and no one died. They risked it all. They sacrificed. But in the midst of it, as a result of it, David and his men save Israel. How did they save Israel? God gave them into his hand. God 
is the artist. David is the brush. God is the carpenter. David is the hammer. David is like working out his own salvation in Philippians language while God works and wills in him to do his good purpose in Philippians 2 language. This is what we see in the Christian life is that God is the sovereign. God is the gracer. God is the mover. God is the one who gives any victory. And he loves to give responsibilities to his people to walk after him, to obey, to say no to sin, to kill sin, to flee temptation, to stand up against the devil, to fight, to evangelize. It is not an either or that there is one God or three persons. We can't figure it out. There's one God and three persons. It's not an either or that the Bible is written of God and yet written of men. It is both. It's not either or that Jesus Christ is fully God or fully man. It is both, and it's a mystery. And I can't figure out how this works between divine sovereignty who elects and who graces and who sanctifies, and he never loses a one, and men who have wills and makes decisions. But this I know. Your Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that you are to be responsible. And at the end of the day, never are we to be arrogant and say, let's be passive and just wait for God to do something. Somebody's got to save him. It's God. We don't want to get involved because if we get involved, we'll take the glory. So God, we're just going to sit back here and pray. And then if we go to war and if we fight and if we see victory, never ought we to be so arrogant that we say, aren't we good? We sit back and just be amazed that God used us. He's the good carpenter. We're just the dull hammer. But to God be the glory. Let's boast only in Jesus Christ. So David saves the inhabitants of Keilah, verse 5. Six, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Long story short, one priest was saved, and he ran out of Nob with this garment called the ephod, which had this thing called the Urim and the Thummim. It's all weird. No one really knows what it is, but it's some garment with a contraption that God used to tell Israel's kings what to do. Magic eight ball. I don't know. Genie in the lamp comes out and talks. Something, but it's some way in which God gives revelation to his friends. What are we seeing here? David is so blessed of God. He is a man who follows after God's heart. He is a man who follows Israel's true leader. He is the one who goes and inquires of the Lord twice, and God sends his way, the priest, with the revelation machine. God sends his priest with his word and David is privileged to have that man in his presence and will safeguard him until the day of his death verse 7 now it was told Saul that David had come to Keel and Saul said do you see that next word God Saul said God has given David into my hand for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Saul should be really happy. My people that I love and care for deeply have been saved from their enemies, and I have not had to lose a man. Well done, David, but that's not going to be Saul. Saul's a punk. He has to lift himself up by tearing down other people. He can't stand sharing the stage with someone else. And so Saul hears what David has done, and all Saul can think is, God has delivered him into my hands. And Saul declares this. He's like a false preacher. 
who in the name of God spouts forth wickedness. They're always out there. I don't want to be that. I work hard not to be. Sometimes I'm sure I am. I hate that. I repent of it. When I use God's name and God's word, I want to present it rightly. But Saul, he, he's going to do what he wants to, and then he's going to blame God and tell, tell you that God is the one who's called him to sin in that way. You'll find those people if you ever do counseling. They come into your office and are absolutely sure that God has told them to, and it will be something completely contrary to the word of God. No, God didn't tell you to do that because he doesn't have double speak. He doesn't have a forked tongue. What he says in his word is what he always thinks. He never changes his counsel. Saul then is going to travel with his men, surround the city, besiege the city. Finally, his lust for David's life is going to be fulfilled. He's going to take out his enemy. Where's Jonathan on this day? We don't know. But I like to think that Jonathan had an information leak going on. That somehow he got word to David, uh, Dave, you may want to take a little trip. There's some people coming your way to see you. Verse 9. I don't know if that's true. David knew that Saul was plotting and against him. How did he know that? Well, he has been, but how did he know it was coming? I don't know. And he, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Listen to David's questions. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? They will surrender you. David learns of Saul's intentions. He also learns of the ungrateful betrayal of the people he saved. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Until we look within and realize this is what I do to Jesus all day long. He's given me his life. He's paid on price for all of my sins. He gives me his word. His Holy Spirit dwells within sweetly and confidently. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. We're heading in the right direction. And over and over again, I say to him, I'll take your salvation. Thank you. But when the day comes that I may have to stand up for you, that may be a price too great for me to pay. That's what the men of Keilah do. They played the role of Judas, who was interested in Jesus until it cost him too much or wasn't going the way he wanted it to go. David hears, and what does he do? Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the stronghold in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Here we see another principle that there is this thing called God's revealed word where we can go to it any single time we want to and find instruction and principles for living life. And you ought never to do what it says you ought not to do. You ought always to obey what God says in his word. But his word does not cover every decision you make in life. 
Uh, there may be principles, but it doesn't tell you whether to buy the Nissan or the Honda. So what are you supposed to do? When God reveals, you do what you learn from his revelation, but then you use your noggin. And you don't ever confuse faith with folly. That's another thing you see quite often as a pastor. People are absolutely sure that God has told me to go out and buy that Cadillac and he'll provide the money for it. I'm just going to name it and claim it in Jesus' name. And then you can't pay for it. There's a, uh, there's a line between faith and folly, and the line is, did God say? If God said for you to do something, even if you don't understand it, obey. But if he doesn't give you clear instruction, then think. Be reasonable. Be rational. Use the mind he has given you. Sometimes we stand up and fight. Sometimes we do what David did, and we get out of Dodge. We hit the road, Jack. We run, and we say, we'll regroup. There'll be another day to fight this war. But this is what David does. David follows the leadership of the Lord. He uses his mind. He runs on this, on this day. He has no interest in taking out God's anointed, by the way, which you will see over and over again. And what does Saul do? I've already called him a punk. Can I call him a loser? He just keeps losing. Saul is so dull. Every single day, he continues to rage, plot in vain, and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Every single day, he bucks the system, kicks the goads, leans on his own understanding, or chooses the way of folly. Every single day, he disregards God's instructions. He has no interest in being a leader who follows Israel's true leader. He fights and fights and fights and fights. And all he does is lose. So that's a story from about 3,000 years ago, written somewhere 2,500, 3,000 years ago by someone. What does that have to do with us in the year 2013? Maybe you've pulled some applications out of there, but but I have four that I want to, to leave you with. And I think they're going to be really encouraging. What do you do when we've made a mess of things like David? What do we do when we're Adam and Eve? We've been created in God's image, called to enjoy and serve him, but we've taken counsel from Satan and disbelieved the good instruction of our true leader. What do we do when we have proven to be sinning saints like Adam and Eve, causing horrible consequences to be experienced by our spouse, our children, and our grandchildren? What do we do when we've proven to be sinning saints like Abraham and Sarah, suffering, fearing, and leaving the place God has told us to go? Like Abraham and Sarah, doubting, getting into our own problem-solving, sinning, and even laughing behind God's back. What do we do when we've proven to be sinning saints like Joseph's brothers, selfishly scheming, harming, betraying, lying, and ruining our own families? Or sinful saints like Samson, feeling the power, enjoying the victory, feeding the flesh, suffering the consequences, and sensing our strength is gone. What do we do when we've proven to be sinful saints like Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and all the disciples as they are shown in Scripture to fight for supremacy, harm, 
fellow worshipers. Abandon Christ in his moment of need. Practice legalism. Encourage schism and discount God's grace when people like John Mark maybe just need a second chance. What do we do when we've proven to be sinful saints like the church of Ephesus? Once gloriously hot following the leadership of Paul, then Timothy, then John. Or gloriously cold and refreshing and useful. But now Jesus shows up and gives us his appraisal and says, you're just lukewarm. What do we do when we're guilty of misusing pills? What do we do when the bottle has called our name one more time? What do we do when the happy family that we present is the biggest lie we propagate? What do we do when we have slandered, gossiped, and injured? What do we do when we have coveted, stolen, lied, and grabbed as a bigger piece of the pie just to make ourselves happy? What do we do when we find we are still sinfully lusty in desire and in practice? Or we're sinfully disobedient and dishonorable towards those placed in authority? What do we do when we find the only thing separating us from Madoff is the scope of our business crime? Or the only thing separating us from Murdoch is that he actually acted out the hateful murder that is in our own hearts? What do we do if we, did, if we have acted out that murder and have contributed towards the unjust taking of life? What do we do when we have not the two most important commandments, because none of those are even the most important commandments. We have not loved our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. What do we do if we have not sacrificed to serve those who are hungry and needy and homeless? Oh, these are laws of God, and a breaking of any of these laws is a big, big deal. What do we do if we've gone months without reading His Word or engaging in private prayer, or we don't keep His name and His worship seriously? What do we do if we're like the prodigal who has taken everything our father could give us and then run off in the far land to squander it on ourselves? What do we do when we find ourselves more like King Saul or the inhabitants of Keilah than we ever imagined? First take home, God will have us look at our families and remember Jesus. So let's just go back and put ourselves in the, the shoes or sandals of Adam and Eve. You've just blown it. You were a saint. You've turned your back on Jesus. I wrote the following. Like Adam and Eve, hear the bushes moving. Hear the footsteps of someone walking in the grass towards us. Hear him calling our names. He knows us, and he seems to be dissatisfied with the distance and the hiding. From behind the bushes, look at his feet and see the evidence of a brutal fight, evidence of a rescuing us from Satan's clutches, evidence of a bloody crucifixion. Go ahead and stick your neck out a little bit more and see his face. A visage with scars, but with a tenderness that words cannot express. Feel his strong hands help us to our feet. 
feel his strong but tender fingers wiping away our tears. Feel his strong arms wrapped around us, embracing us. Then allow him to easily take off our self-produced garments and cover us with the one he has custom made. Hear him tell of, our, of, our, of his righteous love for us. Hear him tell of the brutal crushing he received for the condemnation of all our sins and transgressions. Then keep listening as he calls to turn us from our former affections, thoughts, words, and deeds. Hear him as he offers a fresh start. This is what he does. Your Bible starts with this story and it continues all the way through. And that's all we've got for you. Though you have fallen hard like David, he is here today and all he's doing is walking towards you, calling your name, saying, how much longer till you come to me? Then confess with David, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, God. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's not a prayer of conversion. David is already saved. That's the prayer of a sinful saint who has made a mess of things. Remembering Jesus who is to come. So today, smile, sing, rest. Be amazed at the unfathomable grace of Jesus Christ. It is true. Secondly, God will have us courageously worship. There's a book out now called The Gospel Waltz where the man talks about repent, believe, and fight. So far, I love the book. I may recommend it. For a long time in my own journey, I've learned that I like to organize things around the words law, gospel, worship. What do I mean? You go into every single text and you find what it has to say, what it has to command, what is that which is right that you're to do and wrong which you are not to do. Read God's word and learn how his good, high, and holy law is always to be taken seriously. That's law. Then realize you're not that one who's ever taken it seriously. Gospel. Run to Jesus, like I just said. But then what? We respond in worship in that order. We don't do in order to get. We don't do in order to be. He does it all by himself without your help, and then he calls you to respond. And so now we do what David did, and we courageously worship. That's what David said in Psalm 51 that I just read. After that confession, he says, Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He says, open my lips and I will declare your praise. He then says, the sacrifices you want are not bloody sacrifices. It's a broken and a contrite and a changed heart that says, I can't wait to worship you. I'll be the sacrifice. So David longed to teach. Adam and Eve got out of there and started teaching Abel and Cain how to worship rightly through sacrifice. Abraham and Sarah said, let's procreate one more time. Let's give it a good shot. Joseph's brothers brought their family to God's man for him to save. 
and feed them. Samson said, let's pull at those pillars one more time and go back to work for God. Peter, Paul, and the disciples confessed their sins to God, confessed their sins to one another, and keep proclaiming the glorious gospel. John Newton, the great slave trader, he wrote his hymns, he preached his sermons, he shepherded a flock. Did you hear what I said? The horrible slave trader responsible for man stealing and slaughtering. He was the one who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which we sing today. This is what God would have us do to be Chuck Colson, who uses our prison story to glorify Christ. Priscilla Butterfield, who uses her sexually deviant past to be a testimony of God's grace. Or Joe Franks, who every single week, regardless of your pretended views of me, every single week, all I can do is read God's law, talk with Jesus, confess my sins, feel his gospel fingers on my face, his gospel embrace around my shoulders, and have him say, get up, son. You know how sinful you are. And you don't even know the beginning of it. I've died for all your sins. And they're not pretty. And they're not cute. And it's not okay. I've covered all of your transgressions, past, present, and future. You just are a sinful saint. What are you going to do? You're going to add to your sins by being quiet? You're going to add to your sins by walking in them more? You're going to add to your sins by not using your spiritual gifts? You're going to add to your sins by just going? What are you going to do? Just do the next right thing. Serve, teach, pray, fight, work, do. Oh, it's all divine sovereignty. You can't do anything without me. Now be responsible and respond. Follow your new heart that I'm working in you. Do what you want to. Run from sin. Run to me and serve. Friends, let's repent of our passivity. God is the one sovereign, but we are the ones responsible to do ministry. And let's repent of our disbelief. God is the one who really has covered all of our sins. And now we have a mission to accept, a purpose to fulfill, a goal to achieve, a people to serve, a law to keep, a work to do, a truth to proclaim, a walk of worship to practice, a sin nature to confess and hate, transgressions to put off, temptations to flee, loves to practice, a fight to wage, and a people to save. What you going to do? Take from Jesus all that he offers. And then look at your leader and courageously worship by following him and watching what the carpenter wants to do with you. His dull hammer. Watch what the artist wants to do with you. His paintbrush. And when we sense any degree of success, I want to read this carefully. 
when we sense any degree of success, when we sense any difference between the way we live today versus how we were yesterday or last year, or when we sense any difference between ourselves today and someone else, let us repent of our arrogance when we find ourselves taking credit for any of our victories. Let us boast only in the Lord. To God be the glory. Number three, God would have us seek godly counsel. So what are you going to do? Let's learn from our past. We have leaned on our own understandings. We have made a mess of things. Christ would not have us trust opportunities, open doors or closed doors. Christ would not have us trust majority opinion, and he definitely would not have us follow our hearts and trust our own understanding. The heart is deceitful, your Bible says. Christ would have us trust God's word. It is the owner's manual for life. We need to join with David and say, oh, how I love your law. We need to join with David and meditate on his law day and night. We're foolish when we do not engage in some form of Bible reading and meditation every single day. We follow our leader by listening to our leader who speaks through his word. Christ would also have us trust God's counselors, for in his Bible he tells us that in a multitude of counselors there is wisdom. He tells us when there are two or three faithful friends together, the rope is stronger than when you're making decisions by yourself. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Iron sharpens iron. How good it is when you have questions and you gather with other people who know the word, who have the Holy Spirit, and together you pray and say, Lord, we have a real decision to make here. It is good for you to have a plurality of elders with whom you speak. And Christ would have us use our noggin and trust him when he doesn't reveal a specific way in which we're to go. Use his principles, use his word, use his counselors, and make a decision and go. Sometimes fight, sometimes flee. He's got a big plan. You're not going to mess it up because all things work together for good for those who are his people. And number four. God will have us see all this good that he's promised to David and all this good that he's promised to Israel and all this good that he's promised to us and he would have us patiently wait. Again, I have to beat up. And so how, wait, how do I do this humbly? I should be more humble. We'll back up. I won't say beat up. I have lots of friends out there who are sinful preachers like me who get into the Word of God and they study hard and they present what they think and sometimes we're all wrong. That's, that's better. And the way I think that they are wrong is that they are the people who promise you health, wealth, and prosperity if you follow Jesus or if you name it and claim it. That's just not what your Bible seems to teach to me. At least that's not what you see with David. David is in the perfect center of God's will. David is the leader, following the leader. He's inquiring of the Lord the first time, inquiring of the Lord, inquiring of the Lord. And where do we find David? 
betrayed by the city he saved in the wilderness, in the wilderness, running for his life. The same was true with Jesus. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was the Son in whom the Father was well pleased, and He is the man of sorrows. And the same has been true for His church. Oh, there are good days. There are blessings for walking in accordance with the owner's manual. I do believe that one's finances will generally be better off if one follows the principles found in God's Word. That your marriage will be with more joy a lot of times if you follow the principles that are... It is good to walk in the path that you are designed to walk in and to listen to the voice of God. But don't you believe for a moment that if you name it and claim it and find yourself faithful, that you will be rich and happy and life will be chocolate, roses, and champagne. Don't let suffering surprise you. Don't let suffering shame you into thinking, what have I done wrong to deserve this? Don't let suffering disable you. Do what David did. Do what Jesus did. Do what his disciples did. Hurt, suffer, ask questions. Go to work. And wait for that final day when God crushes Satan under our feet. Despite any measure of faith, obedience, and service, God assigns and allows a measure of suffering, persecution, betrayal, and tribulation. And God's people, in the end, never lose. You can have hope as you're a leader following our true leader.